Man, that was absolutely stunning. Let's thank them for worship, worshiping, leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, guys. Someone asked me at the back while they're like, so was today's LB's last Sunday? And I was like, I didn't say that. So I, if you're confused about that, that's why we brought him up on stage to pray for him. At, at times, pastors can think we say things and we actually don't. So that happened this morning. So that is um, why that, we did that this morning. All right, so we are... Uh, continuing in Philippians. We're actually starting in Philippians because we haven't actually touched the text of Philippians yet. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Whenever we start a book, I like to make sure that you understand the context. So I'm going to ask you some questions. This is like review questions from last week. So Philippians, who wrote it? Paul, you should know that by now. Uh, He was writing to the church at Philippi. Yes. Now, where was he when he wrote this letter? He was in Rome. And what were his accommodations? So he was under house arrest. So they don't think he was maybe like in a cell. But he was in some situation where he is under house arrest. Probably not as nice of a place as where Tyler lives. All right? So not that nice. But it was was not necessarily a jail cell. Um, so the way this would work, so Paul's in Rome. He had actually planted the church in Philippi. And remember, there was Lydia, there was the demon-possessed slave girl, and also the Roman jailer. And these were the first converts in Philippi. So Paul is now writing to a church in Philippi from Rome to encourage them. And this is one of Paul's most, it really is his most encouraging letter that he's ever written to any of the churches. He's not, if you, if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is laying the smack down on the Corinthian people. That's not what's happening to the church of Philippi. It's a very encouraging letter to this church. The way this would work, they would send the letter to the church through a messenger, a courier, and they would deliver it to the church, and someone would stand in front of the church at Philippi and read this letter out loud to the church. This is how it would work. There weren't necessarily copies being passed around, but they would read it in front of the church when they would gather together for worship. So in the opening section of this letter, we know that Paul's situation, he is locked up under house arrest. So even though he is confined physically, you you see his heart just gets unleashed towards these people. Even though he's locked up physically, his heart is unleashed with affection towards the Philippian people, the church there. And you'll see that in the first few words of this passage. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you open up a letter that Paul has written, it's very tempting to skip over the first part because it seems like the boring stuff. It seems like just, okay, greeting, hello, here, I'm Paul. It sounds like just formal stuff. So let's skip to the next part. Well, I want you to stay in verses 1 and 2 for a moment and pay attention to the words. Let, let the words sink in. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ. Remember who Paul was. And where he came from. When a few years ago in this room, I asked these students, I said, who is someone today in modern culture 
that you'd be really surprised if this person came to faith in Christ. And several years, they said, they said Lady Gaga. That was the person. I'm not sure who it would be today, but several years ago it was Lady Gaga, who they said, we'd be so surprised if she became a Christian today. And as surprising as that would be, that still would not rise to the level of what it was like for Paul to become a Christian. Because in that day, Paul was seen, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He wasn't just someone who was like Lady Gaga. She's, okay, she's, we know that her values don't really merge with the virtues of Christianity. We know that. But she's not necessarily killing Christians the way that Paul was. She's not persecuting the church in that direct kind of way. So Paul becomes a Christian. And you can imagine that many were very skeptical of this person becoming a Christian. So if you were to compare someone that would be like Paul today, it might be the leader of ISIS. Like, this is the kind of level we're talking about. So imagine if the leader of ISIS, someone who is dedicated to driving out Christians and persecuting and killing Christians in the Middle East, that is the kind of person that Paul was. So when he says the words, when he just writes the words, servants of Christ Jesus, do you think that when Paul was writing those words, he recognized the irony of what he was writing? Like, here I am, Paul, like what I used to do, I had blood on my hands. And now I've got tears on my hands from the work that God has done in my life as he writes these first words to the Philippians. That he can call himself a servant is a remarkable thing. Then look what he calls the people in Philippi. He calls them saints. Now, when you hear that word, what do you think of? Now, I know it's football season. Don't think of, like, football. But when you hear the word saints, first thing that comes to mind is what? What do you think of? What words? Maybe concepts like holy, pure, like you think of these concepts. Now, generally speaking, we don't think, you don't, you don't look at your Christian brother or sister in Christ and think of them as a saint because you know there's junk, right? You're like, they're not a saint. I know, what, I know all about them, right? But Paul is calling these people in Philippi, he says, saints. He calls them saints. We might use it of certain Christians as a way to mock good behavior, oh, that guy, oh, he's such a saint, right? We might use it to mock someone's good behavior and say almost like a derogatory term. But Paul uses it and says of the whole church in Philippi, he calls them saints. Because this, this word saint doesn't describe behavior, it describes position. It describes who they are in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, it means that you are a saint, It means that you are pure and holy. God sees you as pure and holy because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you. That's why you're seen as a saint. It's not because you're a goody-goody or because you're just well-behaved. It's got to do with your position, not your past behavior. Remember who's included in this congregation. So there's Lydia, there's the rich businesswoman. There's the demon-possessed slave girl. There's the Roman jailer. So this letter will be read in front of the Philippian church. Imagine these people sitting there next to each other 
whatever they did back then, sit, stand, whatever they did, and they're listening to this letter being read, and imagine the, 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 the demon-possessed slave girl sitting there with the Roman jailer looking at him and saying, can you believe this? Like, we're called saints. Like, I used to be a demon-possessed slave girl, and yet now I am a saint, and you are a saint. I mean, maybe the Roman jailer and Lydia are now, like, dating. Maybe they're a thing. I don't know. But they're saints, right? They are seen as saints. Paul calls them saints in the opening portion of this letter. So this church has grown. There, maybe some have become elders. Maybe, maybe the Roman jailer is an elder in the church now. Maybe Lydia is a deaconess in the church, and she's serving the church in some way. But these people have grown into the body of Christ. Now, I know when I look around this room, if I were to say to you, do you see yourself as a saint? Many of you are going to be like, no, I don't see myself as a saint. And it might be because you struggle with certain things, and I understand how you might see yourself that way. Maybe you have shame from past sin struggles, current sin struggles, and you just don't see yourself. You, don't, you, don't, you would never link that word to yourself. And yet Paul here calls this body a group of saints because this is what it means to be a Christian. You are not, there are no second class people in the kingdom of God. Do you know that? If you're a, if you're a follower of Christ, if you claim Christ as God, you are a saint in his eyes. You're a saint in his eyes. Some of you in this room are going to be future church leaders, elders, deacons, pastors. You are going to lead the church. Where else do you think we're going to get leaders if it's not in this room right here? Some of you will become pastors, elders, deacons in the church. I love that so many of you, I love when I see you guys walk in and I see like the launch pad shirts on you guys. And I'm assuming you really are serving. You didn't steal the shirts, did you? You really are serving. I hope you are. Um, I just thought they were cool shirts. But I love that many of you are serving over there. I love that so many of you are serving in other ways in our body. And I want to remind you that, um, that don't ever let shame current sin struggles, shame from your past, keep you from understanding that your saintly status is secure in Christ. It is secure in Christ. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. A theme of this letter that you're going to see is joy in all circumstances. Remember where Paul is, he's in house arrest in Rome, and you would not know if you're looking at this letter, if you're trying to guess where this person was located when he's writing these words, you would not guess that he's in prison. You would not guess that he's in a bad situation physically, but he's under house arrest. I meant to share this last week, but didn't have time to do it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul goes through this list of things that happened. So Paul is being taken from Jerusalem all the way over to Rome. And it's a several-year journey to get to Rome. And they encounter numerous trials along the way. Paul lists those out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He, he talks about being beaten five times. So the way in which Jesus was beaten 
one time. 40 lashes minus one. Paul was beaten that, that many, that way five times. Five separate occasions. Three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. He was adrift all night. Danger from rivers, robbers. Danger from the Jews, Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. No sleep, no food, no water. Do you know what kind of mood that would put most people in? Just those, just those things happening, but you're also a prisoner. There's that to add to it. Uh, my family, we have been saving up some, some money and some airline miles for a while to go. We want to take our kids on a trip. And we decided to cast all that in this past summer, and so we decided to take trying to find a place, and so we decided to go to Bermuda. And so we flew. The plan was to fly to Bermuda and spend about, I don't know, eight or nine days there, then fly back. And as you know, summer is crazy. When you're in my position, you have impact, you have mission trip, and then vacation is after that. So it's just this one chance in the summer to have this incredible, relaxing vacation. And uh, so we're so excited. So we get to DFW Airport. We're going to fly from DFW to Miami and then Miami to Bermuda and spend about eight days there and then fly back, and it's going to be perfect. And then the trip happened, and we get to DFW, and we're so excited and pumped up, and we get on the plane, and the kids are like, we're going to Bermuda. Ever been to the Caribbean or anywhere like that before? So we're going to go to this really nice place. And then we get the, everyone's closed in on the airplane, everyone's strapped in, ready to go. Pilot comes on and says, hey, guys, uh, this plane has mechanical issues. We can't use this plane. Okay, so we get off that plane. Go back in the airport. We find another plane for you guys. Go to this other gate. Go to the other gate. We get on that plane. And they say, guys, um, we're all strapped in, ready to go. And the plane is just, it is so hot on this plane. Like the AC's not working. And we're like, are they going to turn the AC on? We're going to die in here. And the guy comes on and says, um, hey, guys, uh, this is your, you know, all captains sound the same, the exact same. This is your captain speaking, and uh, the AC in this plane is broken, so we can't use this plane. So we get off that plane and get on, go to the airport. At this point, we know we're going to miss our connecting flight in Bermuda. Well, it's not going to happen. We've already missed our flight there. And so we're just trying to get to Miami first so we can catch the next day flight to Bermuda, right? Making all these phone calls, making plans. Um, having to do another return trip home and stuff. So we, get to, we finally get to Bermuda like two days later, right? And uh, on the way home now, we are sitting on the tarmac in Bermuda, and the, I get a text message that says, your flight from Washington, D.C. to DFW has been canceled. Search other flights. And I'm going, are you kidding me? And so I'm on my phone trying to find other flights, and they're not working out. And so... Um, we end up staying the night again in D.C., paying for a hotel, and just, it seemed like the travel part of the trip, like, I like to travel, but I hate traveling. You understand what I'm saying? I hate it. And what I notice about all these little, what we see as trials on this little trip, were that they put me in the worst mood. Like, I am, I am not a fun traveler whenever it comes to those situations. I'm just not. You can ask my wife. She'll tell you. But as I sit there and I go, but let's just boil this down. Dave, you still got to go to Bermuda, right? You still got to go to Bermuda. 
Paul experiences trials and he gets to go to jail. Like that's the destination for him is jail. And I'm looking at myself and I'm like, man, this is just so hard. And it's like, no, read Philippians. Joy and contentment in real trials, not the ones that I make up in my head, right? So you're going to see this theme all throughout, all throughout Philippians, joy and contentment in trials. Now, I want you to, um, when you look at this, this text, you're going to see this deep affection that he has for these people. And he sees them this way because of their partnership in the gospel, he sees them with this deep affection because he, they have a partnership with him in the gospel. I told you we'd, we'd see a theme in this book, gospel-centered friendship. I know many of our friendships, mine included, are based on surface-level things like personality, popularity, similar tastes in things like music, books, movies, humor. Someone just gets you, sports. And these are not bad things. These are blessings from God. But do we ever get deeper and move beyond that into gospel-centered friendships. We're dealing with that question a lot as we go through this text, this, pa- uh, this book. Here's what often happens in high school. For many of you by junior or senior year, you are so set on what's next, college, for many of you. You start asking questions like, what's the point? What's the point of investing? And so you just begin to drift away when in your mind, you're just, you got one foot in, one foot out, and you see yourself as leaving in a year or two, so what's the point of really investing? But imagine if, if someone like Paul lived that way. Like, he would go visit churches and be there for a short time, but he would invest himself wholeheartedly while he was there. And the Philippians were recipients of that. Paul knew he would leave them eventually, but he still invested in them. And it sounds like this deep friendship he has with them is what is sustaining him in this really hard time in Rome. When you leave this place, when you leave this ministry, what friendships from here are going to sustain you when you go beyond this place? Will they be the kind of friendships you can look back and say, yes, like those connections, like I know there's something real. I know there's genuine affection for other people in my life because of what I experienced there. And you, and you can strive for the same things as you move into the next phase of your life. We had a senior night last Sunday at my house, which I absolutely love. I think we broke the record for most people ever in my living room. It was great. It was awesome. I posted a photo on Instagram of that just as a say thank you to the seniors for being there. And a senior from last year texted me, and she said, seeing that photo made me so sad. It just made me so sad to, to, that I'm not there. And she misses all of this. And we had some, and she's one of them. She had, there were some people that we had last year on the senior class that I think wanted to savor every moment of their senior year, including just being here with you guys. They invested. They invested well last year. And as they went through the year, they would say things to me like, this is so sad. This is our last impact. This is our last New York trip. This is our last Sunday in the Outback. And they would continually say, the, I'm like, will you stop saying this? You're going to make me cry. And they would continually say this. And 
on the one hand, some of you are thinking, well, this is why I don't really want to invest because I don't want to be sad when I graduate. I don't want to be happy when I graduate. And yet, I think you're missing out. I think you're missing out. One thing I told our seniors last Sunday, develop the kinds of friendships this year that you'll miss when you graduate. Do some things this year that you're going to miss next year. Paul knew that he would eventually leave the Philippian church, but he still invested in them. And it sounds like these friendships are sustaining him as he suffers in Rome. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you, are all, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, verse 6 is one of those really famous verses in Philippians. I know there are some people in here who just recently became believers, or you just recently got baptized. But you're already starting to feel like a failure. You're starting to ask questions like, why do I struggle like I do Why do I sin like I do? Listen, verse 6 is a reminder for you that he started the work in you and he will finish it. He will finish it. When he will finish it, he will finish it completely when Christ returns. You can take comfort in that, knowing that none of us are complete until Christ returns. All of us are a work in progress. Some of you have unrealistic expectations for yourself. And you're beating yourself up because you're not as complete as you think you should be. Some in here have unrealistic expectations for other people in this room. Stop beating them up. Know that God started the work and he will finish the work. He will make us all complete when we join him one day. There's a quote by a guy named Stephen Lawson. He says, Salvation is not a matter of our working for God's acceptance, but it is God working for us and in us. Salvation is not by human achievement, but by divine accomplishment through the finished work of Christ upon the cross. If God caused you to be born again, you can be assured that he will complete this work. As a believer in Christ... You are certain of heaven as though you have already been there 10,000 years. God finishes what he starts. This does not mean that once you're a Christian, you just sit on your hands and like let God do stuff. It, It means God's giving you some things to do. He's giving you things you can do. So I've told you before, my grandfather was a farmer, like a real deal farmer. Like he didn't have like two pigs and that was it. He had like a big farm. And he would... He would, every season, he would plant stuff, like real huge crops. And he would go till the soil. He would plant seeds. He would cover them over. He would water them. He would fertilize. He would take care of everything he could within his power. But my grandfather never once looked at a corn stalk and say, you see that corn stalk? I did that. You see that? I grew that. Like, I take credit for what happened with that corn stalk. He didn't say that. That'd be foolish. When it comes to the act of growing, my grandfather couldn't even explain it to you. He had an eighth grade education. 
And yet he knows just the things to do in order to grow a bunch of corn stalks. But he knows that God is causing the growth. He knows there's a miracle when it comes to the growth of the corn stalk. The same is true of you spiritually. God has given you some things to do. There are some things to do. There is prayer. There is fasting. There is community. There is opening up your Bible and understanding it. There is gathering together to hear the Word of God preached. If you don't do those things, you will not grow. But the growth isn't to your credit. It's a miracle how that happens. God starts the work in you, and he will finish it, but it does not mean that you sit on your hands and that you don't do anything. You use his means of grace that he's given you so that you can grow in the way that he has um, prepared for you to grow. I want you to look back at verse 7. Because these Philippians, they stood with Paul in his imprisonment. And so at this point, Paul had become famous in that part of the world. And there were some Christians that were beginning to abandon Paul. And they didn't want to get in trouble. Because back then, as it would be now, going to prison would be shameful no matter why you were there. It was a shameful thing. So Paul is thanking the Philippians for not abandoning him while he's in this really tough situation. They embraced Paul despite his imprisonment. They risked it, they risked it all for, to be friends with Paul as he's in prison in Rome. This is a picture of gospel-centered friendship in action, being willing to suffer for someone else for the sake of the relationship. And then look at the end of verse 7. Paul says, He says, you have partnered with me in the defense of the gospel. This weekend, we had Sean McDowell here. He was an apologetics professor at Biola University in California. And he specializes in this apologetics. Apologia is the Greek word, defense. That's a biblical idea. And the Philippians are partnering with Paul in their defense of the gospel. And I know some of you don't like the idea of having to defend your faith. But you do need to know why you believe what you believe. What you believe and why you believe it. That's why it's so important. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. We can talk about community and friendship, but do we truly love one another? That last statement where he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment really hit me. Do do we love each other in this place? Is there truly a love for each other in this place? You look at the progression of the passage As your love for one another abounds, this is what's going to propel you towards spiritual growth all the way to the day of Christ. Another way of saying this would be loving one another is essential to your sanctification. Loving one another is essential to your sanctification. We cannot separate love for each other and spiritual growth. We can't separate those things. I read recently there are four different kinds of people or four obstacles to keeping us from having these kinds of friendships. Here's the first one. The sensationalist. 
Now, don't start, like, pointing at people when you, like, read these definitions and go, yeah, I know someone like that. Like, they're sitting right over here. Don't do that. But sensationalist. This person doesn't find Christian community interesting enough. They just don't find it, like, they're, they like maybe the dramatic more. They like to be more sensationalized. So they, they isolate from the body of Christ because they just don't find it all that interesting. And what Philippians will remind us is that the steady, stable, even sometimes what seems like boring relationships, friendships, are the ones that are going to cause you to grow. The second kind of person is a mystic. This person lives with a me and Jesus Christianity without the church. So similar, a little bit different. They're the ones that just want to go off into the the woods or the fields and just have this one-on-one with Jesus all the time, and it's never about the body, but it's always about just me and Christ. We have this thing, we have this connection. No one else understands it. And so they isolate themselves. Then there's the idealist. This person has a wish dream of what the church should be, but the church never measures up to it. And so they bail, the idealist. Then lastly, there is the individualist. This person falls prey to culture and only enjoys community online. This is the person who just, they have it, but it's like not really a true, real sense of community. So they just enjoy this um, sort of peripheral friendship. And it's not real flesh and blood. They don't connect with people. And I think the only way for these mindsets to change is for the concepts in verses 8 through 11 to truly sink into your hearts and your minds and your souls. Listen, um, it is super late. I'm going to let you guys go to your discussions. I'm, not, I'm actually going to leave off my last point here, but go ahead and have your discussion at your tables uh, for the next few minutes. Go ahead and have your discussions.